I do believe that unidentified aerial phenomena are a mixed bag. I think many of them are probably used for uh, espionage, but by other nations. Uh, I think that uh, some of them are just weather balloons or, um, you know, drones or U.S. government developing some uh, equipment that others are not aware of. Or, you know, it could be some, uh, you know, natural phenomenon. But it's sufficient to have one object which originated from an extraterrestrial origin for this to change the future of humanity. Because we developed our science and technology over one century. Quantum mechanics was discovered a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. And all of our gadgets are based on that understanding of quantum mechanics, just 100 years. My, my point is that's one part in a hundred million of the age of the universe. So most like, and most stars formed five billion years before the sun. So most likely, they're much more advanced than we are. It doesn't matter what the answer is. I mean, if it's if it's no, it's maybe disappointing, but that's still interesting because that means life on, on Earth is unique. But if it's yes, uh, if it's yes that there is life even in our own solar system doesn't prove there are UFOs or UAPs. But it is at least a step in the direction of saying, well, it could have been. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. We are live on all things internet-related with uh, my good old friend. He's not that old, but he's a friend, uh, and that's Avi Loeb joining us uh, all the way from the Eastern Seaboard, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Harvard. And we have a new friend joining us today also young and distinguished and that's uh professor gary nolans thank you guys for joining me gary how are you today up north great thank you and up north yes yes up in the frigid north of uh, palo alto <laughs> and avi is jealous of that frigidity i'm sure avi how are you sir i'm doing great but most of the universe is much colder than the earth so i i feel sympathy to the rest of the universe <laughs> oh that is great well uh for those of you who are new to this channel we have conversations with the greatest luminaries in science technology engineering and math we have uh luminaries ranging from 14 nobel prize winners uh four billionaires and that includes avi and gary uh so those are two new billionaires uh we've had guests on from all over the spectrum of culture and today we're having a very special pre-thanksgiving episode which is to discuss and and have a uh, a gentleman's debate about the impact the import the knowledge and the future of unexplained aerial phenomena and this is an area that these two gentlemen have made a contribution i want to thank you guys in particular because uh you know a lot of what we do when we are expressing an interest in this uh in this subject gets met with derision with um maybe attempts to humiliate to dis to uh, discredit folks that are interested i find that uh repugnant but uh but the fact is you guys are some of the most distinguished intellects on this planet. We're very lucky to to have you in this community, but you're also incredibly open-minded. So I, I don't expect you to reply to that, uh, but I just want- I do, I do have a reply. I just wanted to um, mention that uh, in politics, you see it very often that there is polarization where you have the extremes on both ends uh, fueling each other because one side uh, says soft nonsense and then the other side uses it as fuel to say also nonsense and then you end up with a situation that doesn't make much sense and uh, the middle ground of common sense is not populated 
uh, not in politics these days, and I would say not in academia, and uh, also on this question of unidentified objects, because what I realized is, first of all, you know, as an astronomer, I was driven into it by data that uh, implied an object that looks really unusual, and that what happened to be the first object from outside the solar system that we identified, called the Muamua, and since then we find two others before it, meteors with my student, we can talk about it. Yeah. But the point is, these looked unusual. They didn't look familiar. So I said, okay, let's study them. And of course, the subject was ridiculed by mainstream astronomers. And then they tried to explain those things in terms of rocks that we had never seen before, objects that we had never... So to me, I mean, it, it didn't sound like they are trying to use familiar objects to explain them, but they appealed to unfamiliar objects that still keep them sort of relaxed, that they are natural and so forth. So they dismissed any uh, possible association with other technological civilizations, even though we ourselves launched five probes to interstellar space. And, you know, why not uh, imagine that others did it as well, billions of years before us? And then on the other hand, you have those uh, believers who would interpret anything unusual in the sky in terms of being extraterrestrial. And the reason I say that is, you know, when Ukrainian astronomers reported about some dark objects and didn't have good distance estimates for those, and I suggested that maybe they got the distance wrong, and as a result, these would be just artillery shells, uh, those believers jumped at me and said, you know, it must be extraterrestrial because there could be new physics. And I say, well, for new physics, you really need a very high bar. You know, like we work right. really hard. We, you need exquisite data to convince you that you are missing something in the known physics. And you can't just jump into a conclusion about new physics because, you know, you see something that you didn't really measure well. Okay, if it's sloppy data, that cannot be justification for new physics. You need to have exquisite data to argue for. New so you see this polarization of two sides and one uses the other uh, to justify their extreme positions. So the scientists say, we don't want to be to share the same bed with those people that don't believe in the scientific method. And those that don't, you know, those believers, on the other hand, say, look at the scientists, they don't pay attention to this. So my point is, mm. populating the middle ground that makes common sense and following the scientific method is unpopular. Okay, and yeah. that is really surprising to me. I thought it's only the realm of politics, but over the past year, I learned that it's the realm of science as well in some areas. Yeah, and we've we've talked uh, before about new physics, uh, but today we're going to talk about new biology, and that's courtesy of our of our new guest on the show, which is uh, which is a real treat, Gary Nolan. Uh, you're perhaps you know along with Avi, my most frequently requested guest on this subject. And I just want to introduce you to my, my audience. You know, most of the Nobel laureates I've had on are physicists, uh, although I have had on a Stanford professor, uh, Guido Imbens, who's a colleague on campus. And I have Jay Bhattacharya, not a Nobel Prize winner yet, but he's coming on next um, to talk about his experiences with the Galileo-like affair that we'll talk about uh, when he's on. Uh, but uh, Gary's an immunologist, an academic, an inventor, business executive. Uh, helps to uh, to to lead or or, or works with uh, six different companies. He holds the Ratchford and Carletta A. Harris Professor Endowed Chair in the Department of Pathology at Stanford University School of Medicine. Uh, usually, Gary and, and Avi knows this. I usually ask you to start off by describing 
your latest book, but you told me uh, <laughs> you prefer papers. And uh, and I want to uh, just get a quick tease of this upcoming paper, if you're allowed to to talk about it, just from to set the stage in your bona fides for my physics minded audience. Oh, well, we've got well, let, let, let me first riff off of something that uh, Avi was just saying about this, you know, this divide. And, you know, I, I think a lot of it begins with something that I've always focused on, especially in my lab meetings, is finding the point which is off the, the line mm -hmm. and paying attention to it and not ignoring it. Because you can continue to walk that line and continue to basically do conventional science, but it's when you see the point off the line and you try to explain it, either as being an error or as something that is indicative of either you know, new biology or mm -hmm. new physics or new observations, et cetera. You know, I, and I think I mean, I've been having this conversation with a fair number of people lately about, you know, what is a standard of proof? And, you know, the standard of proof really differs depending upon who you are. You know, science has a standard of proof that says, you know, I, I can reproduce it. I can hand it the data to you. You know, I, it's not an anecdote. I mean, I have my own anecdotes of things that I've observed that, you know, in standard science might be thought of as preliminary data. Mm -hmm. It's preliminary data. It's sufficient for me to get sufficiently interested, but it is not something that I could hand to somebody else and say, here is proof of a new object or a new physics or what have you. So I think we, we I think one of the things that is important for both I think what Avi is doing, what I'm doing, is to teach the lay public what these different kinds of proof structures are that enable one to be thought of as, say, a believer or to be thought of as a scientist. And now, a believer isn't a negative thing. I mean, religions are believers, uh, but there's, if you want to take the realm of religion and belief and hand it over to science, that's where this disparity happens. So I'm, I'm happy to occupy that middle ground where Avi is basically arguing we should be as scientists and argue to the people on my, let's say, far science extreme and say, you know what, you guys are acting more like priests than you are like scientists. Uh, so why don't you come a little bit closer to this line? Mm -hmm. And then you say to the people on the far other side, you're acting more like you know, you're not act, you're acting more like priests. And if you want to talk to the scientists, you need to come to the middle. Mm -hmm. And so let's find a way to to create languages which allow the two sides to talk to each other. That said, I'm not you know, this is not the U.N. I'm completely willing to ignore both sides. Just do the work, create the data, publish a paper, get it peer reviewed and say, there it is. Now you try to argue with the data that I've just presented you. And if you can't come up with a different conclusion that justifies the data and at least the speculations I'm coming up with, then get out of here. Yeah. So, Brian, if I may just add. Yeah, go ahead, Abby. Two, two short points. One, there is a, a common thread between spirituality and the frontiers of science. Mm -hmm. In both cases, you are exploring the unknown and we should be humble in the sense of not assuming we know the answer in advance. You know, a lot of scientists uh, do their job in order to demonstrate that they're smart. It's all about themselves. You know, they will do mathematical gymnastics, even if the real universe didn't show that there are, there are more than three spatial dimensions. They will just show that they are smart for 50 years, 
by doing manipulations in extra dimensions, even though we have no clue for that. Now I say, okay, five years, 10 years, reasonable, 50 years is starting to be excessive. And the point is, it's not about us, not demos, you know, showing off. It's about learning about nature. And unless you get some dialogue with nature, getting some evidence for what you're doing, you're doing math, mathematics, okay? Yeah. And you are trying to show off, but you're not explaining nature. So that's the first thing. First thing is we need humility uh, to learn from nature by experiments to get the feedback and uh, respect the data, whatever it is, if it looks unusual, we should not brag that we know everything in advance, that we are experts, that we can explain everything by past knowledge. We should be open-minded to new knowledge. The second point uh, that, you know, that is really important is that science is about the signal to noise ratio. Yes. Okay, what does it mean? There are all the time noisy, you know, fluctuations, things that happen by chance, that do not signify anything unusual. It's just rare phenomena that happen now and then, okay? Mm -hmm. And what people fail to understand, like in a war zone, if you go to Ukraine, you increase the level of noise, okay? That's why I was reluctant to consider Ukraine because there, is a, there are lots of things flying in the sky, many of which we don't know because the US government wants it to be classified or the Europeans want it to be classified or the Russians want it to be classified. But there are things flying in the sky all the time. This in increases the level of noise in the sense that we don't know what they are, okay? And there would be spy satellites, all kinds of things. You have to realize that given that the noise level is high, the chance of you seeing something that you don't understand is higher, okay? So it's all about how significant is the signal that you detect relative to things that happen by chance in the environment that you're looking at. And that's something that the public fails to uh, follow because they say, we will go to the war zone because maybe they will be there. But then you have to understand that that burden of proof is actually higher. It's higher. If you are in a noisy environment, you have to work harder to demonstrate that there is something unusual going on. And you, you know that very well from the cosmic microwave background, from studies of the universe. I mean, we looked for fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background relic from the Big Bang for many decades until the signal to noise ratio per pixel was above one. At that point, it was detected. And before that, it was not. So it's really all about the, the, not just the signal, but how unusual is the signal relative to some random occurrences in yeah. the environment that you're looking at? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's often missed out. And and one of the things that I most frequently hear about is that uh, there's you know kind of a conflation of the of the notion that these are legitimate phenomena to study, but also that they could be representative of much more plausible, I mean, effectively much more plausible uh, explanations. They could be, um, you know, hallucinations or mass delusions. They could be military psyops. There could. So do you guys think that a lot of the kind of um, dereliction or the uh, or, or the denigration of this subject, Gary, I'm, I'm interested particular to get to, to get your take on it because you've been incredibly courageous. And uh, it's almost like when you talk about it, you're immediately assumed that you must cleave to one camp or the other. So I want to ask you, in, in keeping with what Avi said, do you, did you come into this field? I mean, this is not your field. You're an eminent, world-renowned scientist. Uh, did you come into this field with any preconceived notions that there were phenomena? <laughs> and then, so, so there's been a great sacrifice that you and Avi, to some extent, have, have undertaken. So explain, what was your motivation? How did you, what's your origin story in this, uh, Gary? Well, I mean, 
I mean, I have two origin stories, if you will. I mean, and I, I've been open about this. I mean, I saw an object when I was young as a as a paper boy, uh, and it went right over my head. It was, you know, it was un, uh, unmistakable, uh, you know, that it was not supposed to be there. But I was, what, I think I was 11 or 12 years old. I don't really remember. Um, but I didn't know what it was, but I remembered it years later. So that when the whole subject of what UFOs or whatnot might be, I could look back on that and say, well, you know, in, insofar as what everybody else is claiming this to be, that was a UFO. It was clearly, it, to me, it looked like technology. It had lights. Uh, it was making no noise. It was 30 feet over my head. Uh, and it was, you know, 530-ish in the morning. Um, but, you know, as I, I explained this to, to um, Avi at one point, uh, it, it's an anecdote. And so it is It is not sufficient for me to use that as proof of anything except to myself. To me, it, it currently motivates me to continue to look into this because at some level I want to prove not only to myself that I wasn't seeing something, uh, but I want to prove to others that it's, it's worth it. But I got, you know, I, I got brought into it. Uh, by basically a, a visit by government agencies and an aerospace corporation asking me to help them understand how uh, pilots and uh, intelligence personnel or how they had been harmed. And they, you know, they came to me because um, my lab had developed or been involved in developing uh, one of the world's most advanced blood analysis uh, uh, instruments. And they said, okay, well, in, a, in part of a, a larger medical workup on these individuals, they said, would you please help us look at the blood of these individuals to look for signs of inflammatory disorders? Uh, and they showed me data. Uh, and that data was sufficient for me to get more and more interested in this. And then I got, you know, shown additional and more data. And frankly, it was just like I was saying before, it was data off the line. And that in just, it, I, I'm just drawn to that kind of stuff. I mean, it, it is one of those kinds of unsolvable problems that are or just was begging for an answer. And I suppose the reason why I continue to get more involved is because people told me not to get involved. Like other scientists, oh, you shouldn't be doing this. It'll ruin your career. And I just, it just, I had a, a, an inner welling, I guess, of anger about it. Is that why would you even say that mm. you're, it seems that you're closing your mind to some fascinating possibilities. And anyway, it's my time. So why do you care? Right. Right. I think that's the, you know, kind of the, 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 you know, to whatever extent there is a conspiracy and I'm not a conspiracy minded person. I don't think you guys are either, but there is a, um, a desire not to think about these things. I mean, Avi mentioned religion earlier. Um, you know, one of the reasons there's that a, I, but there's a conspiracy, there's a conspiracy by scientists to tell you to not think about it, which isn't like yeah. it's being driven by anybody behind the scenes. Right. It's like this, it's like this, uh, I, I don't know. It, it, it's like they're afraid of being painted with a brush of your belief, even though I'm not asking them to believe in it. But now, I should, what I, do you say I, to somebody, Avi, who says, look, you guys are I mean, they're going to bring out this card. You guys are three chaired white male professors. You are the peak of privilege, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
how can you legitimately say, Avi, that you there's a conspiracy against you? You're one of the most you know, peak performers the planet has ever known. I mean, how do you answer those kind of critiques? Well, there is no conspiracy. I don't believe in those. But I wanted to mention that two thirds of the America of all Americans believe that there is extraterrestrial life. Um, and uh, uh, that's more than the number, you know, the, the nearly 50 percent that believe God exists. OK, so and then there was a poll recently uh, by Elizabeth uh, Stanway in uh, the UK. Um, she polled the, of all the 350 astronomers and 94 percent of them admitted that they uh, were fascinated with uh, science fiction and and then um, 60 something percent of them are suggested that they chose astronomy as a result of reading science fiction and um, you know thinking about um, extraterrestrial intelligence so i say to myself well it must you know resonate very deeply with those astronomers and with the general public the only question is why professionally they put this makeup of pretending they don't care about it, they don't want to fund it, and they want to assume that the universe is a zeroth uh, assumption, that the universe is dead, lifeless, which is pretty much what cosmologists do all the time. And, um, you know, I, I do believe that unidentified aerial phenomena are a mixed bag. I think many of them are probably used for uh, espionage, but by other nations. Uh, I think that uh, some of them are just weather balloons or, um, you know, drones or U.S. government developing some uh, equipment that others are not aware of. Or, you know, it could be some, uh, you know, natural phenomena like birds or, or uh, thunderstorms or whatever, or meteors. But it's sufficient to have one object which originated from an extraterrestrial origin for this to change the future of humanity. Because imagine us finding a gadget and, you know, the chance that the gadget was produced by a civilization which is exactly at the same technological phase as we are is minute because we developed our science and technology over one century. Quantum mechanics was discovered a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. And all of our gadgets are based on that understanding of quantum mechanics, just 100 years. My, my point is, that's one part in a hundred million of the age of the universe. So most like, and most stars formed five billion years before the sun. So most likely they're much more advanced than we are, whoever produced this gadget and we can learn a lot. It, uh, you know, and, and one thing we need not to worry about, that's something that Stephen Hawking argued that, you know, we should be really careful. They might harm us. I don't think so. I think they're so much superior to us. It's just like a biker you know, driving down the sidewalk and what the colony of ants does in the crack of the pavement is completely irrelevant. I mean, they can decide about the protocol, how to engage with the biker, but that doesn't really matter. So I think we are dealing with something far beyond us, which in a way, you know, is uh, similar to um, religions that believe in, in something much more powerful. So I, I, that's why I said that spirituality and the frontiers of science may have something in common. Well, let me, you know, since you've heard my spiel a little bit, Avi, but maybe Gary hasn't, um, you know, I of the three of us might be, you know, I mean, I think we're all skeptical. I think that's the job of a scientist to be skeptical, but also approach things with an open mind. And maybe the latter is not as common as the former should be. And the default reaction of a scientist, you know, should be essentially, as Isaac Asimov said, you know, that's odd, not like Eureka, I have found it. Um, but I've said to you, Avi, I've said, you know, the well, first of all, the the, the appeal to 
popularity, right? So I was in Europe recently at Galileo's house. I mean, this is amazing. I was at Galileo's prison house in Florence in Arcetri. And, uh, and I was there and I was thinking, you know, with the prison bars on there, that he was in prison for saying something essentially that was, that was true and that didn't go against the prevailing religious doctrine of the day. In other words, uh, the, the person who came up with the idea that the earth was the center of the universe wasn't, you know, Jesus Christ. It was Aristotle and Ptolemy. Now, you guys know better than, than, than the average person. Those were pagans, right? So why did the Catholic Church, Avi, did you know this, that the Catholic Church, uh, you know, made Aristotle effectively baptized him 1,400 years after his birth so that the so that the sun could not be the center of the universe i, I well no that, i mean you can understand it from a political point of view because if people uh, if you flatter the egos of people they adapt your doctrine so in order to attract more believers what you would argue is that we are central to the universe we are central actors god is really focused on us mm -hmm. and then people will believe you if you say oh you, we are just side actors you know there are much more important things happening in the universe and we are just we happen to be here by chance and then people say well you are just depressing you know like this doctrine is not appealing to me i want to be at the center like all the alpha males want to be at the center and guess what if you were to tell putin that by conquering a piece of land he would look like an ant hugging a single grain of sand on the landscape of a huge beach. You know, he would be really upset, but that's the truth. You know, the universe is huge. We are insignificant. We just came at the end. If you come at the end to a, a play and you are not at the center of the stage, guess what? The play is not about you. But people don't like that message. They want to be central and important. They want God to look over their shoulder and re respond to everything they do. And as a result, if the church adopts this doctrine that we are central to the universe, they get more believers. So I think it was serving a very good political purpose, basically. Well, that, that brings me to a, to a question for Gary. So that, that uh, one of my friends uh, um, here in San Diego wanted me to ask you, <clears throat> why should we expect, along the lines of what Avi said, the centrality, this notion, our cosmic ego and significance, why would we expect or should we expect that aliens would even have DNA or or have any kind of chemical composition like we are is that something that we would ab initio expect in, in other words is DNA the fundamental operating system of life in the universe uh, or would we are we being too um, uh, what do you say anthropocentric by assuming that if there are life forms that they must be quote unquote like us well I think you can you can take that question in two directions I mean one there's plenty of evidence that uh, the raw materials for DNA are everywhere. Um, that's pretty clear. Um, there's, some, there's two interesting papers that I'm aware of about, uh, about sort of the, uh, the panspermia um, notion. Uh, one of them is it's sort of uh, applying Moore's law to DNA uh, regulatory complexity and the, the, the regulatory programs that uh, you can infer uh, from everything from you know viruses through bacteria, yeast up until us, and the, the the premise is that you can essentially show that there is a Moore's law of genetic complexity that uh, would uh, you can draw across the timeline of um, life on Earth. The problem with the timeline and the Moore's complexity is that it goes it goes back to, and points to a, a time about 8 billion years ago when life likely uh, exists or started. 
in terms of if it were a linear line. Now you, so there's two solutions to that. It either happened 8 billion years ago, well before our, uh, our solar system was around and got here on meteorites or uh, other uh, basically modalities, or it rapidly ascended and the complexity basically happened in maybe 100 million years and then uh, achieved linearity. Um, so that's that's one fascinating uh, aspect, and it's a, it's a, an interesting published paper. People can go and argue about the math if they want. I'm not going to get into the that argument. You know the authors of that, Gary, so I can put it in the text. Um, I'll I'll go find it for you. I haven't got it on on my computer here, but um, no problem. I'll put it a, later. It's a, it's a Moore's law um, argument about it. It's fascinating, and the other is the so-called it's called the Wow signal in the in the genetic code. Hmm. Um, and it was by a couple of uh, uh, scientists from, I think it was Azerbaijan, mathematicians looking at the, at the, the genetic code structure and uh, essentially laying out, again, a mathematical argument that the DNA code, the genetic code for determining a triplet of bases into, into proteins was designed. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they said that basically that's the wow signal that we're all looking for. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I mean, the, the, the problem, I mean, it's a fascinating argument and the map looks good. Uh, but um, the, the problem is it falls prey to the uh, to the uh, the attack that you 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 can't apply simple linear mathematical approaches to evolution. It's the same thing that, you know, the. Uh, the selfish gene of Richard Dawkins, his beautiful book, um, basically lays out that you know just because the eye didn't ab initio uh, evolve out of nothing, it doesn't mean that there's a god involved. Mm-hmm. But the wow signal—it's a—it's a beautiful. It really is a beautiful paper. Yeah. It's a think piece. I, I posted it in the in the. Uh, it's overlaid your face right now, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I see uh, it there. Yeah. No, no, it's great. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I just. Again, I, I don't think it's proof of anything. Kazakhstan, not Azerbaijan. I apologize to both nations. <laughs> don't start any wars in that part of the world, please, Gary. That's, yeah, so it's a, going on. I think that those are those are two papers that um, underpin the sort of scientific notion that this panspermia effect can be at least analyzed by traditional approaches, mathematics at the least. But then the other is, you know, I, I think you go back and, and probably Avi knows this as uh, even better, the so-called notion of Boltzmann brains, right? Are you aware of this, Brian? The, the yes. Boltzmann brain? Yeah, we, yes. Mm-hmm. We spoke with Sean Carroll about that. And uh, Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's fascinating that, you know, you, you can perhaps have organized plasma or organized objects in 3D space that if they could be uh, if they could self-contain themselves, there's no reason that they cannot be conscious, right? Mm-hmm. It's not life as we understand it, but you could still imagine it as conscious or consciousness. And, you know, if if such existed, it's been around since the beginning of, of what we would call time. That's right. Yeah, if I may add that, Brian, mm-hmm. uh, what uh, traditionally humans uh, called God in religious texts, in philosophical texts, you know, there is a lot of philosophy around it could simply be attributed to an advanced scientific civilization because we are getting to the point where we will uh, develop life in our laboratories. And you can, and again, it's a hundred years after modern science started. So you can imagine 
that a civilization that had a million years of scientific uh, work might uh, know how to unify quantum mechanics and gravity, even though for 50 years string theorists were not really able to come up with predictions, maybe a more advanced civilization was able to figure out how to unify quantum mechanics and, and, and gravity and, and engineer that knowledge. Okay, so once you understand it, you can engineer it and create perhaps a baby universe in the laboratory. And mm -hmm. so my point is that here is a path. It's often thought that religion and science are somewhat contradictory, but that's if you stick to traditional notions. But it could well be that you know, when you advance to a high enough level of intelligence, you realize that what we called God is actually a manifestation of, of a much mm -hmm. higher level of intelligence or scientific development. And that's where I think that we can bring philosophy, religion, and science together. Mm. It's not necessarily contradictory. Let's just, but for that, we need to be open minded. Uh, we need to allow. Uh, when we attend the class of intelligent civilizations, allow for a smarter student in the class, not just say we are the smartest, there is nobody else in the, in the room, but rather say, let's check, okay? Because that was the biggest shock my daughters had when I brought, brought them on the first day to kindergarten, they realized there is a smarter kid around, you know, like that is a shock. And a lot of people prefer not to look and say, we are the only ones in class and we are so smart that nobody else exists out there. And I say... Well, you know, you be behave just like those people who put Galileo in house arrest mm. because they didn't want to learn about something new. Let's let's go back to the panspermia. By, by the way, this I, I can't resist that uh, on my channel, I like to give away stuff. And one of the things I give away are meteorites. Uh, here are some meteorites. Uh, and uh, Gary brought it up, of course. And, uh, and I can't resist. So you can actually win your own meteorite if you go to my mailing list, briankeating.com slash list, and you'll be entered to win a drawing of a real genuine meteorite that crashed into Argentina about 5,000 years ago, it was discovered in the 1500s, and was used for tools and, and other sorts of implements. And, and it's really fun, and I, I'll send that to you. I may even send one lucky winner some uh, Uranus soap because... <laughs> <laughs> you need to keep your anus clean, as we all know. Uh, but but uh, but actually, my point is a serious one. So panspermia works both ways, right? So I want to ask both of you guys, um, maybe starting with Gary. Panspermia should work the opposite way. In other words, life on Earth should have disseminated throughout the uh, throughout our solar system. And over the billions of years, you were absolutely right. Uh, the origin of life, you know better than me, uh, we believe started about four billion years ago. In other words, it's just a few hundred million years after this meteorite uh, was created in the same proto-solar system, right? The fact is we don't observe any evidence for life in our solar system. I'm not saying it's dispositive. As I think Carl Sagan said, uh, you know, lack of evidence is not evidence of lack. Uh, and, you know, there's my favorite finger puppet of, of Carl Sagan. Uh, I've got all sorts of props. I'm a prop cosmic, uh, prop cosmic. Uh, but I want to ask you, Gary, to what extent can we use in a Bayesian framework the lack of observation of any trace of any existence of life on a meteorite, on, uh, on another planet, as some constraint on the fecundity argument that life should be ubiquitous once it gets started? So I, I don't think that the Bayesian framework operates here. In two, for two reasons. One, we haven't done the real test, mm -hmm. first of all. I mean, so we sent, uh, I mean, actually the department that I got my PhD in here at Stanford, the genetics department, um, they actually built the experiments uh, that were done on Mars and the Viking landers. 
and you know there was there's actually been a lot of post hoc analysis of that original data that said you know what this actually probably was evidence of life but um strangely and i don't understand this and i'm not saying that it's a conspiracy or anything they they keep sending back microscopes that look at rocks but they don't send back a growth media or anything to try to see if something if they were to drop a piece some dirt from martian soil in it if if any critters grow bacteria or what have you so you know so first of all the experiment has been done so you can't populate the priors in the bayesian inference uh there um second well venus at least from the you know viewpoint of um the kind of life that we would be looking for is is not a not a nice place to be if you're if you're life but you know i mean i think we're all looking at the at the under ice oceans around the larger planets here and i would i, I would bet any amount of money that we're going to find something under there i mean all the necessary requirements for the kind of life that we think of are going to be there um water heat uh and probably things like hydrogen sulfide or or other redox related chemicals that would be sufficient for growing uh let's say the even primitive life will will be there i i'm 100 sure that that's where it's going to be now here is an interesting uh, anecdote let me just mention yeah, that uh, <clears throat> you know if there was a news media back uh, two and a half billion years ago they would say some good news and some bad news about life in the solar system because what happened was that Mars lost its atmosphere around that time and it used to have liquid water on the surface. It's pretty obvious based on all the data we have from uh, the Perseverance rover more, most recently. So there, was clearly, there were clearly lakes and eventually for some mysterious reason, uh, Mars lost its atmosphere. I mean, it, it, uh, it has a much lower gravity than the Earth. Uh, but there was some event that caused it to lose its atmosphere and as a result, all liquid water on its surface, all, all life forms. So we might find evidence that life existed on early Mars because it was not very different from Earth, early Earth. Now, around the same time, two and a half billion years, that's a complete, it could be a complete coincidence or maybe not, but uh, the oxygen level in the atmosphere of Earth rose abruptly. Mm. We don't know why, I mean, we know what produced uh, the oxygen cyanobacteria, but we don't know why there was this sudden rise in the oxygen level. And that, of course, enabled all the chemistry that uh, allowed complex life forms like ourselves to exist. Okay, Without that, we wouldn't exist. There wasn't much oxygen in the first half of the life of the Earth. And both, both events occurred at the same time. There was bad news on Mars, good news on Earth for intelligent life or complex life, and maybe they were related, I don't know. But when we look at other planets, one thing to keep in mind is, you know, that we have a 50% chance to conclude, the, the, uh, to conclude that life exists if there is oxygen, because there was microbial life on Earth for half of its life without much oxygen in the atmosphere. And the, the second is that within a billion years from now, the sun will boil off all the oceans on Earth. Okay, so even Earth will lose its atmosphere and the water on its surface. And that's one billion years from now. So that's like 20% left. You know, we don't have much time left anyway. And all of the tricks we are doing about global climate change and so forth, you know, it wouldn't change much when the sun will uh, heat up 
the surface of the earth. Right. Good thing so, we have tenure. Though. No, uh, most stars like <laughs> you say. Good thing we have tenure. Is that what yeah, you said? That's right. But one thing to keep in mind, most stars like the sun formed five billion years before the sun. That's so right. they already went through that. Now, we didn't hear the cries for help from those civilizations that were on these habitable planets like the Earth and said, wow, we're losing our you know, atmosphere, we're losing our oceans, we're losing everything. And, we, and they cried for help. There must have been sort of a, a, an immediate exodus. They must have sent lots of spacecraft. In fact, most of the interstellar objects, most of the interstellar uh, crafts may have been launched at this last phase when the civilizations that were highly evolved technologically realized we're about to die. Okay, so they sent everything as much as they can. And so most of the things we find in the interstellar media may be relics from that uh, desperation, but we couldn't hear them because we were not around. And, you know, these radio signals passed by the Earth when microbes were around, we were not there to hear them. And we will go through that in a billion years uh, if we are, if we will survive all the other catastrophes. But my point is, that's something to keep in mind when we look for SETI signal, radio signals, you know, they cannot come from a star that evolved into the red giant phase, you know, like most of the sun-like stars went through that and therefore just forget about it. Mm. Well, I guess, you know, the, my, my point in bringing this up is that, you know, you either have two different uh, conjectures. One is that the day after we discover unequivocal evidence for the existence of life outside of the Earth, that will transform everything. And I, I sometimes feel like that stands in direct contradistinction to the fact pattern that we've already seen. And that's the following. In 1996, late 1996, early 1997, President Bill Clinton stood on the White House lawn and announced the discovery of meteorites, not unlike this, uh, in Antarctica, where I've been twice. And I've spent about a month of my life there. And uh, it's a barren place. It's a frozen, dead continent, uh, just like the ice planet Hoth. Um, I, I, I love the people there, but I wouldn't want to live there, right? Uh, now, that was never falsified. It, in fact, there were in order to get a NASA press conference on the White House lawn, it had to be peer-reviewed, right, Avi? Uh, and, and that peer review process took place. And it's never been anti-peer-reviewed. It's never been retracted formally. And my question to you guys is, why? So wait, what was the what was the result? I, 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 oh, of the so they discovered these was... meteorites uh, from the Allen Landshill meteorite fall. Mm -hmm. It was actually discovered, and it was believed to either contain microbial life. Oh, or yes. okay, this one, yeah, right. And that was, and you can see it in the movie Contact. There's a scene where President Clinton is talking, and Jodie Foster's on, and uh, and that's really real. It's not CGI. He actually did that, and they used the actual NASA press conference. So my point is that we already in the general public has already been through this. They don't know it's been retracted. I mean, I meet people all the time that don't know my bicep two paper was, you know, the conclusions were retracted. And Avi knows that story very well because he was there. Uh, but I want to ask you guys a question, Gary, if the general public, you know, really hasn't gotten up in arms about this discovery, which in their minds is still valid, it's still a actual scientific discovery. What makes us think that if you come up with proof or Avi comes up with some discovery that anything will be different 20 years from now? Well, you know, I, I said this before, I think if it doesn't affect kitchen table issues mm. um, or doesn't challenge somebody's religion uh, or their status in the, in the world, they probably will just ignore it um, until it, I, I think, ekes out in, and leaks out into, into the general scientific framework so that it becomes, as of many things, 
uh, it now is an accepted fact. And two years ago, it, it, it wasn't. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with the public not agreeing with the conclusions or any conclusions at any point in time. I'm only, I'm only interested in convincing a sufficient cadre of scientists uh, that something is worth studying uh, mm-hmm. so that, you know, continued research can be done on it. I mean, you know, I was, I often say I was, I was raised Catholic, but brought up Jewish uh, by uh, two fantastic scientist mentors when I was a graduate student here at Stanford, Leonard and, and Leonor Herzenberg. And Lee Herzenberg, the, the, the wife, was uh, always of the, when I asked a certain question, says, Gary, you're asking a question that is yes or no. And you can, that's sort of a Las Vegas question. You can be spending so much of your time uh, on a no, and you've wasted, you know, as many months or years of your life as possible. Sometimes it's easy enough to just switch the mode of the question around so that it's a Zen outcome. uh, So that no matter what the answer is, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this is one of those kinds of questions, this whole subject matter it doesn't matter what the answer is. I mean, if it's if it's no, it's maybe disappointing, but that's still interesting because right. that means life on, on Earth is unique. But if it's yes, uh, if it's yes that there is life even in our own solar system, doesn't prove there are UFOs or UAPs. Right. Right. But it is at least a step in the direction of saying, well, it could have been. I, I'm convinced that no matter what we find on Mars or under the oceans of titan or what have you are is going to be you know is going to be related to us whether it started there and came here or vice versa i don't really necessarily care mm-hmm. but there are actually genetic ways to, to get at that probably by the way uh, brian i should emphasize <clears throat> to me science is about learning i mean it's a learning experience about reality okay so uh, nature is educating us and we better pay attention. It's a dialogue with nature. It's not a monologue. Okay. And very often we get into a monologue, which is a very bad, um, uh, attitude when you date with a partner, right? You need to listen to the other side. And that's why experiments are so important. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now the point is, why is it beneficial to us to listen and figure out what reality is? is because we it allows us to adapt to it if we have the wrong ideas if we live in the metaverse and put goggles on our head and believe that we look like brad pitt all day long and that we are very attractive next to celebrities you know we may feel good about ourselves but it will not be the reality that we all share Mm -hmm. and the same if you take recreational drugs you may feel high and very good and but it's not the reality that now the scientific inquiry allows us to figure out what reality is and sometimes it contradicts our uh, you know prior beliefs like quantum mechanics you know was in conflict with the traditional thinking and einstein had a problem with that but he was wrong okay so the point of the matter is that by understanding why you are wrong you can then realize how to cope with the new sense of reality. So for example, if you know that the Earth moves around the sun, when you design a space mission, you take that into account. If you believe very uh, decisively that uh, the sun moves around the Earth, you will never get to your destination by launching a rocket, okay? Because you have the wrong idea. So reality is whatever it is, and we better adapt to it. And the only way to do that is by 
you know, collecting data, not human beings are not scientific sensors. They're not mm -hmm. scientific tools. We learn that over history. That's why we, we are using instruments. And that's what science is based on. So collecting quantitative data, understanding your instruments, and then learning something new about reality will benefit us no matter what we find. Absolutely. But, and I yeah. wonder, Gary, what do you attribute? And I, and I think, you know, just with, with all lack of false sincerity to mix a lot of things. Uh, I think you in particular have been in part uh, crucial in the destigmatization of this phenomena and to the fact now that it's being studied by none other than NASA. Uh, what do you attribute the recent upsurge, the kind of, you know, the three of us are old enough maybe to remember Nancy Kerrigan, uh, why me, you know, why now? <laughs> why is this becoming in the in the forefront of our collective you know frontal lobe why is it uh, not the avi lobe uh why is it uh why is it now coming to the forefront such that what was previously derided and you have suffered a lot of slings and arrows personally gary why is it now coming you know, sort of kosher to to investigate this so much so that nasa itself is investigating it what do you attribute that to well, I, I, I think it's a conversation across the multiple fields of, let's say, human professional uh, uh, arenas. I mean, one is the sciences. Um, you know, it was for me actually very exciting when um, Avi got on board because I felt like, OK, well, here's another person, uh, another serious scientist uh, that I can point to and say, see, yeah, I, I'm not the only I'm not the only one. Um, but I second, you know, I think it was the, really the efforts of people in the intelligence services. I mean, we all know of Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon and then the pilots who came forward. And not because I think that they're, they were addressing some sort of conspiracy. They were actually being scientists. They were saying, look, there's, there's data off the curve here that needs to be understood. We don't know what it is. Uh, and I think them going public and going, I mean, everything, even though the, the, the New York Times article changed things in the, back in 2017, I think those pilots being on 60 Minutes, it was that kind of personal, uh, frankly, anecdote uh, that was you know, given and conveyed by, um, by credible individuals. Uh, that changed things because you you heard people speaking in their own terms. I mean, I can speak to another scientist in my own terms within my own language of science, and they will believe me because of that. So there was something essentially very human about what these individuals did, where they uh, they took more bricks and arrows than than I ever did, mm -hmm. um, and and so I think that it was. It's that kind of back and forth. There's a there's a ricochet effect occurring um, where I, I don't think we can expect that ricochet to be sufficient to propel it. I think we need to continue to work on it. And mm -hmm. frankly, we need to I need to be able to provide the kind of proof that I think another scientist would uh, agree with me is is yeah. irrefutable. And I've had, um, I've had so on... I think that's kind of what it's about. Mm -hmm. Last year I had on um, Jim Semivan, you know, former CIA um operative, executive, maybe, uh, along with Tom DeLong, with my good friend, Kurt Jaimungle, who may be listening, his uh, YouTube channel, Theories of Everything, everyone should subscribe to. That uh, conversation, and actually, thank you, Kurt, for putting me in touch with Gary. I have to give hakarat hatov, right, Navi? Uh, when I talk about uh, these, these subjects with Tom DeLong, he mentioned a problem that he has, but he's not a scientist, so he could get away with it. And that was that he claimed to have alien technology, 
an artifact from a, a downed uh, craft. Um, and he claims that it's 100% genuine. However, the means by which he acquired it cannot be either divulged or reproduced. In other words, there's a chain of custody problem that Avi and I don't suffer from, right? If Avi and I look at a, uh, at a muon, uh, their muons are like commodities. They're fungible. One muon, you've seen one muon, you've seen them all. Um, they're they're interchangeable. Uh, but but alien craft aren't, and so therefore it's very important the provenance, so to speak. And I and I guess I'm wondering, you know, from your excursions, what do you make of of the claims of say a Tom DeLonge or or a Jacques Vallée, who yeah. I know you you've worked with? Well, if he's if he's talking about the uh, the the so-called um, magnesium bismuth metamaterial. Um, you know, I, I have pieces of that. Uh, and I don't think that there is sufficient evidence at this point to claim that is clearly, uh, you know, from an extraterrestrial vehicle. Um, that said, I don't think that sufficient analysis has, has been done on it. It does have slightly altered magnesium ratios. I've, I've looked at that myself, but they're not so far off that they, that they can't be um, construed as some other sort of reason for in, in the in the making of it, so I'm, it, unless he's talking about something else, I I don't I don't know, and nor have I seen it, uh, the the evidence, and so it's I, I I put it into the into the anecdote category, and I like Tom. I mean I'm I, I'm a yeah. you know he's a friend, uh, but I I haven't seen anything else. Mm -hmm. Now I have been given uh, pieces of material that do have chains of evidence. This is the so-called Ubatuba event where we did do a very detailed uh, analysis using secondary ion mass spec of the isotope ratios of two pieces. One was, and we did it in the same instrument at the same time under the same vacuum conditions. Uh, one piece was perfectly conventional uh, magnesium ratios. The other were way off. I mean, so far off as to be, the only thing that I could imagine is it was manufactured. Now that doesn't prove it's a UAP that doesn't prove it was alien. Right. It just says to me, somebody back in the seventies spent a lot of money to change the isotope ratios and then blew it up over a beach in Brazil. And so the only question it raises to me is who would do that and why would they do it? Right. I mean, because we don't use isotopes for anything other than either medical reasons or blowing stuff up. So, yeah. So, so if, if I may add yeah. there, Brian, <laughs> so um, given the landscape that I described before of scientists being skeptical and then uh, believers being very um, proactive and um, so forth, uh, given that, <clears throat> you would ask yourself, okay, who would be the first to notice something unusual? It's obviously the government who has the day job of uh, worrying about national security because they have to monitor the sky at all times yeah. and you know protect military personnel so they keep patrolling uh, or looking from above from satellites uh, uh, on earth and if there is anything unusual they would be the first to notice it because the astronomers build telescopes that focus on a small region of the sky look at very distant sources and if something flies above their telescope, they dismiss it. And even if they see an object from interstellar space that looks unusual, they would say, oh, it's a rock of a type that we've never seen before. So you can see the, by the way, an anecdote, a colleague of mine wrote a review paper in annual reviews of astronomy and astrophysics about Oumuamua, the first reported interstellar object. Mm -hmm. And he said, I just finished writing it. 
uh, a review about the comet Oumuamua. And I said, what do you mean the comet Oumuamua? We all know that there was no cometary tail detected. And in fact, the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply, couldn't see any traces of carbon-based molecules. So he said, well, I have a theory that in fact, the, this object had a cometary tail when we didn't look at it and didn't have a cometary tail when we looked at it. Mm. So I said, that's just like going to the zoo and looking at an elephant and saying the elephant is a zebra. It's just that the stripes show up when you don't look at, at, at the elephant. And just think about it. Mainstream astronomer writing the authoritative review on an object that looked unusual and calls it something that is inappropriate, like a comet. Why would he do that? First, he has the backing of people that say, oh, it's natural, forget about it. Second, he wants to have the cozy, warm feeling of something familiar, okay? So when you call it a comet, you feel, okay, we can move on. Now, my point is, this is not supposed to be the way science is done. We are all supposed to be kids wandering about the world without pretensions, without pretending that we are experts, that we know everything, and without bullying any opinion that might be different than ours. Mm -hmm. That is the way science should be done. And here I see a problem because when young scholars see this behavior, they hesitate to innovate. And then science is not progressing at the same rate as it should. Yeah. It should be blue sky research. We should encourage young people to be creative, to deviate from dogmas. And, you know, it's just very depressing to me to see this behavior. Wow. And he's young, by the way. So he wants to show as if he sides up because he's looking for a job. But this should not be the climate that well, we live yeah, in. I, I agree. I've often said, you know, there was a guy in the in the 1850s who had these uh, incredible ideas that there was an ether and they, the uh, space of the vacuum was actually not a vacuum. There were little gears and whirlpools and vortices. And thank God for James Clerk Maxwell that Twitter didn't exist back then because he would have been ridiculed and humiliated. And we would have thrown the uh, electromagnetic laws that are associated with his name 160 years later out with the bathwater. But I think you're wrong, Avi, because I think scientists are like children. I mean, we don't play well with others. We're very jealous. We like attention and we, and we don't like to share our toys, right? So I want to ask Gary, when, our, when we see things like this, and Avi, please, you too. Uh, and I just want to remind everybody, we're talking with Avi Loeb, Gary Nolan, uh, some of the most eminent uh, scientists uh, who happen to have turned at great personal risk. And I want to say this with respect. Um, I don't have the courage that you guys do. I, I kind of do this because I believe that we as scientists have a moral obligation to share the data, to share the uh, discoveries in a way that our taxpaying public who pay our freaking salaries, I don't care, you guys are at private institutions, I'm at a public institution, but you guys are supported by the public at a, a very deep level as well. I just want to put that out there. I feel it's my moral obligation to share. But I don't have the courage to go out on a limb, to go on Tucker Carlson like like Gary, to go on the various outlets that that you've gone on as well, Avi, because I I I am worried. I'm worried about the the obviously there's there's career risk, et cetera, but there's also kind of a intellectual capture that occurs when when you believe something to be true that no one else maybe agrees with you, or very few of your colleagues agree with you. It's a very lonely place. And, and I, I'm just saying in all honesty, not many scientists have that courage. Not many uh, people have that courage. Courage is the rarest of all human emotions, in my opinion. So I just want to express that. But I do want to say, along the lines of data, I've heard people say, and when Avi was on with Eric Weinstein, we, we heard things like, the data is ours. It belongs to the public. I don't know if I necessarily 
disagree that the data belongs to the public. But don't we have an obligation as scientists, Gary, to interpret the data are very complex. Someone who's watching this channel may be a layperson, very bright, brilliant. I mean, the smartest audience in the universe uh, watches this channel. But do they have the tools to assess at the level that you do because of your access, because of the privilege that you have to be a scientist? Can an average layperson really understand what it is that maybe you might be claiming? Or, or is it your job to explain it in a way that they could? Well, does it belong yeah, I mean, to that, I basically? I mean, I, I, again, I, I, this is kind of a literally a riff on what um, on what Avi just said. I don't think of, frankly, what we're doing as courageous. I'm just doing what I thought science was teaching me to do, mm. right? And that's really what Avi was saying: is that you know that that, that if, if if science is about following rules that somebody else wrote on stone tablets, then science is done, right? And so uh, I've spent my whole career doing things that people told me shouldn't or couldn't be done. Like when I was doing starting companies back in the early nineties or mid nineties, I was told you're going to, you know, destroy your career. You shouldn't do it. Now everybody does it. Right. And people, people who used to come to me and tell me I'm ruining my career, come and ask me how to start a company. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's fine. So I don't consider it, I don't consider it courageous. I'm just doing what I think we're supposed to be doing. Um, you know, that's the, that, that's the first part of it. And sorry, what was the second part of your question? That, you know, when we see data, for example, I'll hear it's, uh, like yes. that, you know, the, right. the Hubble Space field is data, explain. right? It belongs to the public. NASA made the Hubble deep field, uh, James Webb telescope, but, um, it's a pretty picture at one level, right? Avi, it, it, it doesn't really have right. spectroscopic image. So what level do you have to have as a responsibility, Avi, to yeah. distill it in a way that the general tax paying audience who pays our salaries at some level should understand it? Yeah, so that's the rationale for the Galileo project, where we say we don't need to wait for the government to declassify data. We'll just collect data that we will open to the public so that everyone can see it. Uh, and uh, we are funded by donations, and therefore we owe nothing. I mean, there is no uh, level of, 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 of uh, secrecy. The other thing I wanted to mention very often, uh, funding is not done from the private sector, but from committees that allocate federal funds to researchers and these committees argue we shouldn't take risks because otherwise we will waste taxpayers money well guess what if you were to ask the taxpayers uh, what do they care about more the nature of dark matter being let's say the lightest supersymmetric particle or um, whether we are alone uh, or in our class of intelligent civilizations in the milky way galaxy they would say the latter. And if you don't want to waste taxpayers' money, you should put it all <laughs> in the direction that taxpayers want it to be spent. And that poll was never made. So instead, what you have is the mainstream deciding on, it, uh, on its own what's, what they believe is risky. And as a result, they suppress innovation in other directions. And I say, you know, this subject is different. It's not just that I'm deviating from the beaten path in trying to pursue it. It's the path that the public cares about the most and that will have a huge impact on the future of humanity. So by calling it thinking outside the box, we are missing the point. The box is in the wrong place. Mm. I'm thinking straight based on common sense. And one day my hope is the box will be placed when I'm exactly at the center of that box. Okay, But it takes time. And that happened to me multiple times in my career where I just did what common sense makes, because after all, I'm a farm boy. You know, I was born on a farm. I don't feel that I'm uh, that I belong to any elite 
uh, even though I was chair of the astronomy department at Harvard for nine years, you know, I feel like the common person. I think straight. I think with my common sense, I try to reflect what the public cares about. And my point is that, uh, you know, that's the way that science should be done, that we should be just, you know, um, uh, pursuing what people care about. Instead, what you find in academia is a lot of acrobatics of people trying to show off that they are smart. And sometimes they go in dark alleys that nobody cares about, like worrying about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. You know, the equivalent of that would be to say, let's work for 50 years about the notion of extra dimensions without evidence. Without evidence for supersymmetry, we invested the, a lot of billions of dollars in the Large Hadron Collider. We didn't find it. Okay. My point is, it's not a bad thing to do that, those things, but at the same time, you shouldn't ridicule study of something that the public cares about that will have huge impact and that so far was not funded federally at all and why would we even doubt that thing you know why would we if we are doing we are sending interstellar probes why wouldn't we search for others that were sent in our direction in my view it's a completely natural thing to do and the the community is like 180 degrees away from where it should be so it's the box that is in the wrong place mm. you know i'm not thinking outside the box i'm thinking what i you know is following common sense it the box is out of the common sense that's what i would argue i want to ask you you know obviously i want to throw a, I, I want to throw a bit of a stink bomb though at nasa if i may yeah go for it um this uap uh committee that they're doing the task force, yeah. Several of those so-called scientists, and I'm going to call you a so-called scientist until you prove otherwise, whoever I'm uh, deriding here, have come out before they've even said anything and done many of the things, before they've even done the analysis, and have done many of the things that Avi has been uh, discussing. They've, they've pre-boxed their conclusions and protected themselves against others being uh, who might uh, uh, say something negative about them because of being even on the committee. How so? Uh, how, how so, Gary? Uh, how well, so? I, you know, I think I can't remember the name of the woman, but she basically came out and, and said something along the lines of, we don't think that any of this stuff is UAPs, and uh, we're mean, pretty sure. Nadia, that Drake, you mean Nadia, Nadia Drake, probably, the, the daughter of uh, Frank. Frank Drake. I she tweeted exactly. about it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she, she made a statement, and then there was another person, a, a, a BU, or maybe it's a, he just came out this morning, he was just recently uh, put on yeah. uh, the committee. He said something Joshua. similar, Joshua. where it's like, that, what a sad, sad scientist you are, that you feel that you have to say something like that before you even look at the data. Um, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just disappointed. I, I would take people like that off the committee and I'll do something, I'll say something else that I think is a little, why is it only astronauts and astrophysicists who are on this committee? Why? Where are the other kinds of scientists? There's many other there's, kinds there's, of scientists. No, sorry, Gary, the there actually is. There's Paula Bontepi. She's a biological oceanographer. There's the industry people from, uh, from uh, the Potomac. A biological oceanographer. Oh, there's Word. the Potomac okay. Institute of, of Policy Studies. I, I agree. David Grinspoon is a planetary scientist. There's I, a, I, I actually, I, I actually there's a concentration of uh, a type of scientist that I think um, has a predilection to not uh, think outside of the box or in mm -hmm. the right box um, because they're more afraid of what their colleagues might think than others. Mm -hmm. I so actually met them. 
I, I, I question the constituency of the individuals who are on that committee. But 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 ex accepting that, let's ask the meta question, Gary. Is this a good thing? Is that is it in, in principle? I mean, we shouldn't prejudge their conclusions just as no. as as you are. No, I'm happy. I'd be delighted if they yeah. prove me wrong. Okay, Gabi. Well, I think I, 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 by the way, I met with the committee and uh, had a very good conversation with them. The one thing that surprises me is not uh, what Gary just mentioned. What surprises me is that a year ago, there was a committee appointed by the SETI community and decided not to have discussions on UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena, in mm. any of the conferences related to SETI. Now you ask yourself, SETI is supposed to be the closest ally to the study of objects that are unusual, mm. okay? Uh, why would they reject any discussion and dismiss it up front, not allowing any discussion in their, com uh, in their conferences? And the only way I can understand that is they want to distance themselves from, from those studies because they want to show the rest of the community that in fact they are in the middle they are actually mediators and they are more sane than another group in their mind. And as a result, they deserve funding. And I find that that apologetic tone to be completely inappropriate. We should search for radio signals. Fine. We didn't find any in 70 years, just like waiting for a phone call. But we should also search our mailbox for any packages that arrived. And that's a completely different method. And I don't see a contradiction and I don't see why one is supposed to be considered as less uh, valuable or as uh, less worth pursuing, especially when the government comes out and, see, and sees things they don't understand. So let's just figure it out. And why should the SETI community be the one to resist studies of UAP? So I find that really strange, I must tell you, because it shows how the dynamics of academia is controlled by societal forces, not by logical thinking. Do you think that they are under constraints? Let's say they discover something you know, potentially transformative, um, you know, or definitive proof that aliens don't exist, whatever that means. Okay. No. Are they under no, I... constraints? Because they, they are not going to, I've, I've spoken with David Spurgle, who happens to be a personal friend of mine, um, and he's not going to come on the, I mean, he said he'd come on the podcast, but he has this thing called the U.S. Congress to testify in front of first. Okay. So that'll come down the line. Shelly writes, uh, uh, my upstairs neighbor, uh, UC San Diego. So they, they are sworn, you know, to do a good job and come out with these results. Now, on one hand, we we have talked about, you know, the, the, the fallibility or the, or the uh, implicit bias that we have as human beings to confirm or refute uh, hypotheses that agree or disagree with our preconceived notions. Now, I've heard a lot of say, and there is an, a substantial amount of aviation and space, you know, uh, related people that are on this, uh, including people from the FAA. Um, I have heard a lot of things from pilots uh, over the past couple of years, and I happen to be a pilot with uh, with instrument ratings and, and all sorts of, of goodies that fly little tiny planes around uh, Southern California. Not far from, by the way, where some of these Tic Tacs and stuff were observed. But uh, I want to get your impression, first of all, Avi, uh, uh, and then Gary. Uh, for the claims of, of Commander David Fravor, you know, you can't comment on their bravery. I mean, they're far braver and they've done things that I'll never do. And I never criticize them uh, you know, personally. But we're, you know, we're very skeptical of eyewitness evidence in a courtroom. Why are we so, you know, willing to believe in the pro-UFO UAP as alien craft? Why is it so readily accepted that the testimony of an eyewitness who is mostly trained to look at his instruments and fly in his instruments or her instruments? Um, why do we take that? 
with outsized credulity. Avi first, and then Gary, I'd like to get your impression yeah. of that. I, I don't think we sh it should be regarded as scientific evidence. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, let me first comment on why I think you see the behavior of uh, members of the committee or others in SETI and so forth. Uh, there was a congressman uh, who uh, expressed anti-gay statements publicly when mm -hmm. he was in Congress, okay? And once he retired a couple of years ago, he confessed that he is gay. Okay, and what does it show you about human psychology? That very often people are really intrigued by something mm. and they pretend to be something else. Okay, so because of uh, what they see around them. And I think a lot of that is happening in the context of UAP. Those that are object to it the most are the ones that are actually very intrigued by them. And by the way, in religion, very often, if you want to convert someone to a religion, those that, you, you, know, you target those that object the most because they care about it, and then you realize you can convince them. So anyway, just putting that aside, with respect to Fravor and all these testimonies, you know, they are intriguing, they are fascinating, and of course we want to believe that there is something else out there because it's fascinating, it's, it's intriguing, the, right. it will change everything. But uh, from a scientific point of view, I'll tell you two, I'll, I'll give you two scenarios that could explain what the Nimitz report was about. One is there was a swarm of objects, okay? So they saw an object at one point and then a uh, short time later, it was behind them. Now they say it moved so fast, you know, that nothing can do that. But in fact, it was two different objects that came in and out of view, and it was not the same object. So unless you have scientific evidence, you are dealing with, you know, you can read the, ser read the serial number of the object and tell that it's the same object. It may not be the same object. It could also not be a physical object. Like if you have a laser pointed at, a, you know, and, and creating a, a blob of hot gas that appears in your infrared uh, images and appears in your radio images. It may not be a real object. So we don't know. Maybe there was uh, some new equipment the government was testing and not telling those who saw it. Uh, the point is that this is intriguing enough for uh, me or the Galileo project to build a suite of instruments that we will employ and bring to those locations and you know, monitor the sky, take a video of the sky in the infrared, the optical, the radio, and try to figure it out if, if it comes back again. And mm -hmm. we will, of course, let everyone know, and it will not be eyewitnesses. So the point of the matter is, this is good enough to trigger scientific inquiry. It's not good enough as scientific evidence. I agree. I mean, I call it, like I said before, it's preliminary data. Mm -hmm. I could be working at my bench, or when I used to work at the bench, uh, and I can see something in the data uh, that to me is pretty clear evidence, but I know that there is a standard of proof that's required to hand to others. And so, you know, if we could get all of the necessary data from the Fravor and the other individuals, maybe that could be, you know, constituted as, as actual proof. Um, but, you know, I, I, so I think in a, in a nod to the, to the true skeptics, I don't mean the the pseudo skeptics and the pathological skeptics, it's like, yeah, we haven't done our job yet. Uh, or the job isn't, we, we don't have the necessary access to do the job. So I think what the Galileo project is doing and uh, is exactly what needs to be done is just, you know, let's take it into our own hands and do it. And if the government wants to participate and have us help, that's a that's a great thing. I mean, one other thing that I think is kind of exciting, though, about this notion of, um, let's say, preliminary evidence or whatever, if, if some civilization has made it past the inflection point 
of self-immolation that we are, you know, seem to be on the precipice of ourselves. I see that as a positive thing. Um, I, I look at, you know, these supposed events that people see in these objects, even if they're not real, as, as, a, as a horizon to which we can aspire, right? If something can do this, or if we, if we force our minds to think, well, can we do something like that? That to me is a, is a fantastic uh, way to excite the younger generation to come up with new ideas and new technologies, even if everything that uh, is going on around UAPs ends up being a, to be a complete uh, and utter illusion. Mm. Right. Well, we're going to take questions from the audience. So uh, I've seen a couple thousand uh, comments go by, uh, but I'm going to start start the process now of actually looking through them. Uh, by taking my host prerogative. And just a reminder, we're talking with Professor Avi Loeb of uh, a small institution in Cambridge. I love it when I meet somebody from, from Harvard, Avi, and they say, I, I go to school near Boston. You know, I go to school in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, you, really? You go to the Cambridge Institute of uh, Virology? Um, so Avi Loeb. I, I, I will define the, the institution as having smarter undergrads than many faculty I know everywhere. Wow. Well, that is uh, in contradistinction to William F. Buckley Jr., who said, I'd rather have my, me, my government be comprised of the first 50 names in the Boston phone book than the faculty of Harvard University. But I did I did once meet somebody who said, I go to the best university in the world. Uh, and I said, oh, yeah, which one? She said, I'll give you a clue. It starts with an H and ends with a D. And I said, Harvard? She said, Howard, are you crazy? Um, so that's a shout out to uh, some of my young colleagues. Um, Gary Nolan joining us from Stanford University. Um, Avi has some book news that I wanna share. And first of all, I put links to both the uh, uh, gentlemen's web uh, pages down in the, in the description. I put a link to the paper that Gary referred to about uh, the wow signal and DNA. Uh, but uh, but in particular, Avi's got a series of articles in addition to his uh, smash hit book called Extraterrestrial, which he, for which he was on the show a year ago or two years ago now. I can't believe it, Avi. It's going to be two years in January, and he's promised he'll come back for his new book. Uh, say a little bit about your new book, Avi. Yeah, it's called Interstellar, and it will be about the implications to humanity of everything we discussed. So stay tuned for that. I should say that... Um, you know, over the past, since my previous book appeared, I, I was on about 1,800 uh, podcasts and interviews for TV and newspapers and so forth. But the biggest uh, satisfaction came about uh, uh, a week ago. I attended a summit in uh, Palm Desert, and um, uh, a woman came to me, uh, originally from Iran, and she said, can I have a selfie with you? And I said, sure. She knew about me, and she took a selfie, and then she said that, the following morning, she said, I posted it on Instagram and there are hundreds of Iranian women scientists that wrote back to me and said that they are following your work. And I thought to myself, wow, that's quite remarkable because I'm originally from Israel and I'd never imagined there would be hundreds of Iranian women following my work. And I basically uh, recorded a video uh, a, a snippet with her in which I supported the women of Iran in their fight right now in the protest. So what I would like to say is this subject resonates with a lot of people around the world. A lot of people are excited about it. We are going to do the expedition to Papua New Guinea. There is a lot going on. Uh, every day I get uh, surprising things happening. Uh, and uh, within a year or two, I bet you that 
we will have a conversation. The landscape will change, okay? Mm. It's not up to federal institutions to authorize progress. It's not up to the dogma of academia to, to tell us what reality is like. We will just figure it out like kids. And then, you know, I don't really... By the way, I keep thinking about Galileo that knew the truth about the earth and the sun and was put in house arrest. Like, who cares whether the public knows about it, whether people don't like it? You know, that's completely irrelevant. If you know what reality is like, one way or the other, it will, the news will break out, okay? Because that's the reality. You can hide the virus, you can avoid people knowing about it, but the virus, if it's there, people will get sick, you know? So that the reality is whatever it is, irrespective of what humans try to do to hide it. And I like to look at the pimples of reality. I don't want any makeup. You see, the people around me try to put makeup on reality so it looks better, so that we are the only intelligent, you know, uh, civilization out there. We feel better about ourselves this way. I want to, to realize if there is a smarter kid, we, we want to learn from the smartest kid in our class. That's what we should aim at because it will give us inspiration. So we want to find who is smarter, you know, out there. One reason I search for intelligence in space is because I don't often find it when I open the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, Gar uh, Avi, I can't resist uh, you quoting your, your, top, uh, your top aphorism from last appearance when you were on with Eric Weinstein. I'll put a link to it. What did you say about the sky and being classified, Avi? Well, the sky is not uh, classified, and um, that's why we should uh, look at it. You know, and uh, I think we are we we should think of ourselves as uh, students of nature. Let let nature educate us rather than having a, a monologue in which we say what nature is supposed right. to be. And part of nature, you know, I grew up on a farm, and to me, nature is the entire universe. Okay, and there is much. So we are focused most of the time on the two-dimensional surface of this rock that we were born on, the, the Earth. But it's 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 just a tiny rock in in a huge space. And and just you know, let's be more modest and 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 look up. That's all I'm asking. Let's look up. Let's check our mailbox. Like, why are we so close-minded? You know, like mm -hmm. uh, that. That is really. And Fermi asked 70 years ago, "Where is everybody?" That's so self-centered like to stay at home and say, I don't see my neighbors, you know, like what is going on here? Well, you didn't look through the windows. You didn't use a telescope back in 1950. Uh, so how can you claim where is everybody? Like, that well, well hopefully we'll, we'll get a lot of good packages in the mail this Black Friday with uh, books by Avi <laughs> uh, in them. Uh, so first question from the audience uh, for Gary uh, comes from uh, uh, one of my listeners uh, who's asking, are you related to Christopher A? Uh, and, <laughs> and then in all seriousness, uh, Red Panda Koala asks, any updates on the Havana syndrome? Uh, and have you noticed any patterns in experiences held by people that you've encountered? So Havana syndrome up, upgraded. I mean, well, the, I mean, I, uh, I mean, the Havana syndrome relationship work for me basically was, um, you know, when we had a hundred individuals that were, you know, the, 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 some of the data, medical data was taken to me, you know, we had back around 2014, 2015 already figured out that there were, um, uh, well, we'd called it at the time interference syndrome. We didn't know that it was basically some sort of, a, a was related to the, um, the, uh, the issues going on at the, um, at the, U.S. Embassy in Havana. Um, those cases that I was involved with with Havana ha have been handed over to the U.S. government. I mean, they're not my 
I would say, and it's a good thing. They're not my problem anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, science is about classification. And once we could classify them as some kind of, frankly, uh, attack on our diplomatic corps or individuals, those individuals were then taken out of my hands. I mean, not in a negative sense, just that I could hand them over because they were classified. They were I could classify them as something other than, let's say, UAP. They weren't interesting to me anymore because they were understandable. Mm. But what was left on the table, and I think is really this is what the individual is is asking about, um, are the individuals who were harmed in some way or had damage, uh, who claimed some kind of UAP interaction. Again, it's for, Mm. for me... The, the story of the UAP intervention is less interesting to me than is the damage that happened to them and how they came about to be damaged. And what was the, let's say, the technology that uh, caused the damage. And so I, I try, I've said this before, I try to stay away from the anecdotal aspect of the story because I can't verify that. But I can look at the same x-ray or the same medical analysis of an individual, and I can reproduce that analysis. And so that's where I'm, I'm focused. Uh, and I'm sorry if that's not the kind of answer that uh, Mr. Koala wants, but that's really <laughs> as far as I'm willing to go. I, yeah. The other thing I've said is I will not do science by press release. Yes. I will wait until the science is vetted by other individuals. I mean, I got in big trouble doing science by press release with that so-called Atacama thing. And that, you know, the gentleman, Stephen Greer, who I had speculated along the way that I thought that some of the DNA results looked odd and and maybe it was an alien or something. But what I found is that if you speculate to the public who don't know what the limits of speculation mean, they sometimes take what you're saying as a conclusion. And when I basically published the paper showing that this uh, unfortunate um, mummy was in fact a, a young girl likely born prematurely and had multiple mutations in uh, genes that were um, basically in bone development genes. And I had literally the world's expert on bone development genes, Ralph Lockman from here at Stanford, three other Stanford professors who are specialists in South American genetics and all the rest, validate, verify the results, 13 or 14 postdocs, graduate students, Roche science, Roche diagnostics on the paper, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I published it. It didn't matter. And all they could, all they could basically say was I was, I somehow had convinced a cadre of 15 or so people to, to fabricate the data because I got a grant from the DOD for doing ovarian cancer, and that was my payoff. I, I mean, I, I mean th- that is literally, it's, it's, that's what I had to go through. And I realized, okay, you really do, the, the ethics of how science is done really do work. You have to stick to the rules. And the rules are, be very careful what you speculate, uh, because the people who don't understand the rules will run with it. I mean, we see this in the newspapers and social media every day. So that's why I won't go any further. So I'm sorry, Red Koala Panda. <laughs> it's okay. Avi, for you, this comes from uh, Professor Brian Keating. If you had unlimited budget 
let's just say unlimited budget, what would you be doing? What what could you be doing? And Gary, I'm going to ask you the same question. What would you do with effectively unlimited budget? I, I'm, I'm yeah. tweaking this. By the way, I, I tweeted I, to uh, Elon Musk yesterday about this very question. Go ahead, Avi. Yeah, I should note that this is not a hypothetical question. No, I know. <laughs> I know uh, it is. Okay. So uh, because I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I get to meet a number of people that are quite excited. Uh, and so many of them come to the porch of my home to discuss it with me. So, uh, you know, as I said, the two thirds of Americans really care about and believe in extraterrestrial life. And uh, you might assume that many of the multi-billionaires that became wealthy recently are drawn out of that population. So many of them care about it. What would I do? So um, I would follow um, studies in, along three tracks, what, which is pretty much what the Galileo project is doing, just much more uh, forcefully. So one track is um, uh, right now I have money to perhaps uh, uh, duplicate the system of uh, instruments that we have maybe a few times and put it in three locations. Okay, uh, but if I get tens of millions or more than that, I will have I could have hundreds of those systems and that is really the minimum needed to uh, study the problem thoroughly and get enough statistics on all the unidentified aerial phenomena that appeared in reports so what i need is a factor of 10 in funding or more than that and mm -hmm. the more the better in the sense that we know how to make those instruments in fact this week is very um sort of historic for the galileo project because for the first time we're getting data from all the instruments and bringing them to the computer systems uh, mm -hmm. that we have and uh, starting to analyze with artificial intelligence uh, uh, algorithms. So we are, uh, as in the coming weeks, uh, we will basically make sure that everything works. And then uh, within a month or so, we can start planning where to put additional uh, copies of that uh, suite of instruments. And what I'm limited by is the funding. So if I get enough funding, let's say tens of millions to a hundred million, that would allow me to get to the bottom of this question, what are unidentified aerial phenomena? I can promise that and we, we can demonstrate that we know what we are doing with the current system. We just need more copies of it. So that's one track. The second one is going after the fragments of interstellar meteors. So we are going to Papua New Guinea to uh, scoop the ocean floor. That's one interstellar meteor from 2014, the first interstellar object in the solar system, tougher than iron, tougher than all the other space rocks known. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's possibly of uh, some artificial alloy uh, composition. So we want to find out by collecting the fragments. And we are fully funded for that. That's a one and a half million. But there is another interstellar meteor that we identified and we would like to go after that as well so that's at the level of a few million dollars we can go after interstellar meteors okay so we have the tens of millions or 100 million for the uap and uh, at the level of millions for the expeditions then the big ticket item is really space missions so mm. objects that do not collide with earth like Oumuamua was, we could come close to them and take a close-up photograph. And such a mission is actually a billion dollars in cost. So we are mm -hmm. thinking about proposing uh, to space agencies like NASA or others. Uh, but at first, we are uh, designing the mission, the parameters of such a mission, and yeah. we will have a dating app, the Vera Rubin Observatory in Chile, that will start operations next year. And it serves as a dating app because we will see more objects like Oumuamua, and we will swipe to the left for most of them, but some of them would look intriguing, and we would like 
to uh, approach them as they come towards us and perhaps take a close-up photograph. And that's the most expensive. So if I had unlimited budget, I will have those uh, you know, space missions that meet uh, unusual interstellar objects, just like Oumuamua, and take a close-up photograph, maybe even land on them so that they can tell whether it's a hydrogen iceberg, a nitrogen iceberg, a dust bunny, in which case you would pass through it. These are the suggestions by Advertising the Advertising billboard, right. <laughs> yeah, or they have some screws and bolts and we can land. And I would love to press a button if it's, yeah. if it's <laughs> Well, actually, uh, so Joe is asking a question. Joe Westcott is asking, he'd love to help out. He's got a lot of money because he donated uh, 20 bucks to the Super Chat. So I'm, I'm expecting he's also a billionaire. So now I've had on five billionaires on the podcast. Um, how can an ordinary uh, STEM professional participate in the Galileo project? Okay, so we have two, uh, on the Galileo website, there are two uh, items. Uh, one is how to contribute, if someone wants to contribute funds, mm -hmm. um, how to support, support us. Uh, and the second is uh, volunteering to be part of the research team. And there is a different tab for that. And you just fill, the, fill a form and we will look at your um, credentials and make a decision. Mm -hmm. Or you can contact me. You can just email me. Okay. And uh, yeah, we'll have links. We have links to your website on the uh, comment section down below. Gary, if you had unlimited funds, say Phil Knight decides to make another $400 million donation to that fair university to let the winds of freedom blow on this research, uh, what would you do with unlimited budget? It's really kind of a, a surreptitious question, actually. Well, you know, as, as some people know, I've been interested in these claimed materials that have been either left behind or, or dropped from these uh, UAPs. I mean, there's, there's an interesting um, pattern where an object is seen and uh, it drops something, often a, a molten metal. In fact, I published a peer-reviewed paper on exactly this and uh, on a, on a well-credentialed uh, event. Um, you know, we didn't find anything unusual, but there, in terms of the constituency, because it was a molten metal, but how does a molten metal end up in the middle of a field uh, where everybody saw a, a glowing, blinking object, you know, just a, a few hours before? Um, so, you know, in, in, in that vein and say, uh, looking at things that, for instance, Tom DeLonge says that he has or that others might have, there is there are a range of scientific instruments which could be brought to bear, as well as a couple that need to be built, including something called an atomic imaging scope uh, that, um, you know, if you, if you have something, mm -hmm. how do you prove that it wasn't made here? Yeah. Well, you need to know that it was made of things, for instance, that humans don't normally make. That's hard to say because we can pretty much put any set of elements in a in a vat, mix them together, and, and they'll be there. But it's how they're put together. Mm. Um, and if it isn't an obvious technology, nuts and bolts, as Avi just alluded to, yeah. uh, then um, how do you understand or how do you prove that it, it is from elsewhere? Um, but secondly, let's say that you do have something which is verifiably not human. And it is millions of years ahead of us in, in some manner or developed by a technology or a civilization farther ahead. The, the next point of, of just claiming beyond what it is that, that it is from somewhere else is what does it do and how does it do it? And so, you know, if we're going to learn lessons from our betters, let's say, 
uh, what better way to do it than to understand the material that it's made of. And so, as it turns out, I have seen data supposedly from inside of the government uh, on some of these supposed materials. Uh, and I was left wanting for the kind of analysis that were that was done. It just was insufficient. Um, and so there needs to be sort of a standardized pipeline of how the data should be, how materials should be processed so that you can compare apples to apples, oranges to oranges. So that at the end of the day, you get a report which can be read by the scientific community to say one way or the other. I just wanna, I just wanna produce the data yeah. in a way that is credible and then let the conclusions flow from the data. But I have, you know, the, the, the amounts of money to create some of those, to put together a suite of such instruments is in the tens of millions of dollars to do this and to do the make the instrument that I want to make. Uh, you know, I actually turns out I have the funding for it now. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're talking, uh, you're talking a lot of money uh, as well. I mean, producing data is one thing, analyzing the data is wholly another. Right. And so exactly. you basically need to basically bring in the, the kinds of experts, uh, PhD and otherwise to to do it. I, I can't do it anymore. I don't have the time. Yeah. And I mean, looking at, you know, infinite budgets, I mean, the government can actually print their own money. So in a certain sense, they have infinite budget. Are you impressed with the budget they've dedicated to date to this UAP task force, Avi or Gary? I'm, I'm satisfied that they're putting the money to it. And so to the extent that they actually do something with it and don't come out with some, you know, I, I hope that they put a report out uh, for commentary before they finalize that report. Mm. Uh, I think, I, I mean, that I think would uh, lend a lot of credibility to it. Um, so we'll see. I'm, I'm withholding judgment and I would love, to, I would love to say six months from now when they're done with it, I'm sorry to the committee for insulting them. <laughs> okay. Uh, next up, Avi, this is for you. Uh, you can obviously comment on whether or not you think the sufficiency of the federal government NASA budget is adequate. Do you just, Comment on that quickly, Avi? Well, we don't know what it will be. Um, the, uh, right now, it's a study that was funded at 100K, uh, and it's supposed to recommend within a year, by June 2023, uh, how much money NASA should uh, allocate to the study of UAP. So this is not really a study of the nature of unidentified objects. It's more about whether NASA should invest in such a research. Uh, and th therefore, the funds will be allocated if they are recommended only probably two years from now, if you think about it realistically. And my hope is that the landscape of research on this subject will change in the meantime, because the Galileo project, for example, will collect data. And um, so I, you know, I believe we should not wait uh for others to approve the research if there are sufficiently wealthy individuals that are excited about this question we can do it ourselves we don't need to wait for anyone you know it's just like uh, the play of samuel beckett waiting for godot you can wait forever either for the government to declassify data or to fund things that you wanted to fund and then you realize that you're actually the uh, some of your colleagues are blocking it because they want the same funding for something else. Um, but however, if the funding comes from the private sector, and most of my funding came from the private sector over the past decade, and I established um, a new center at Harvard that unrelated to this subject on black holes, for example, and all of the funding comes from foundations or private donations. And my point is, uh, in that case, 
you can explore new territories and you can pretty much decide about what seems exciting, what is exciting to the public. And uh, I think that's a much better path for innovation, simply because of the reasons we discussed before, that there is a lot of inertia for experts to claim that they already know everything mm -hmm. and they deserve more prices uh, in addition to the ones they already deserve. And <laughs> therefore, new knowledge should not be gathered because it would threaten their status. Yeah. Uh, so comes uh, in another question. This is from a, uh, a fellow farmer, Avi, Simon Farmer, who asked the following question. Um, what criteria do you have established to determine if uh, you spot something, uh, whether or not its design is terrestrial, human-made or not? Oh, it's very simple. Um, basically, there are two categories of objects that we are familiar with. These are human-made objects or natural objects. We all know about airplanes, drones, satellites, weather balloons, yes. um, you know, rockets. Um, these are human-made. And we also know about birds, insects, you know, and uh, meteors that are rocky. And so the first task is to basically um, see if everything we, we find in the sky belongs to one of these two. Mm. And if we see an object behaving in ways that are not uh, explainable as human-made technology, because we don't have that capacity, you know, we pretty much know the limitations of existing, I mean, either from espionage or from what we develop. I mean, all of, you know, countries around the world are not uh, head and shoulder above the U.S. So we pretty much know our limits. And if we see something behaving technologically far, you know, better than what we can produce, then we know that, you know, it's not us. And uh, at the same time, if we verify that it's not biological, it's not uh, natural, uh, then we know that it's not from this earth. Okay, so that's really... Uh, now, we still don't know what it is. So my point is it will take a long time for through the learning experience of fi figuring out what it's seeking what kind of information is it trying to get how should we respond to it uh and we don't have a protocol for that there is no organization that represents earth because we never imagined that we'll have a visitor in our backyard or that we will find a package in our mailbox you know if you find a package in your mailbox that is not sent by your family members but uh, in the home you know like sent to just put there by your kids or something um uh, if it's if it came from far away you know you have to decide what to do with it because you don't know what is in, what's inside and one way to figure it out maybe is to try and, and and learn about it what is it trying to do what is mm -hmm. uh what could be the content of this package and and that will be a learning experience we can use artificial intelligence for that because a, it might be equipped with AI itself, you know, mm -hmm. so our AI systems will have kinship to their AI systems more than to us. And that's the way I see the future, by the way. I'm very proud of our technological kids, AI systems. Uh, I don't necessarily think about sending humans to space. I think about sending technological gadgets that are equipped right. with AI. And so I think it will be a learning curve uh, for us to figure out what it is. But at first, the first step is just to uh, f find something that is not familiar. Okay, and that's our, the first thing. A follow-up question from Anton Schuh asks, uh, are you going to open source the either AI or the machine learning research data? Is that going to be open source? And he says Kaggle is a good platform for that. Yeah, so, okay. 
So we are currently developing it and we are also starting to collect data. Eventually the data will be public and the tools that we use will be public so people can check us and also do their own work. That's the way science is done. And we plan to follow that until, you know, we verify that things work to our satisfaction. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, before that it's premature. We don't want to uh, cry wolf, uh, you know, for no good reason. So we want to actually uh, verify that what we are getting is, uh, is is reliable. We calibrate our instruments. We will test our algorithms. And we have already eight papers that we submitted to the Journal of Astronomical uh, Instrumentation where we describe the instrumentation that we are currently already testing. Uh, so we will be open, as open as possible. Uh, that will be a breath of fresh air into the subject because people are used to secrecy or, I mean, it's clear why the government has classification because they collect the data by sensors that that are classified. They don't want adversaries to be aware of the capabilities of the US. So. Uh, it's not so much the data, it's the sensors. And if we developed our, our own sensors that are open, you know, off the shelf, then we have nothing to hide. Mm -hmm. Next question comes from my friend Delon Levy, uh, who asks, um, Gary, does the does or did the government or some other Earth based institution have a live alien? And what, if anything, did they learn about these internal uh, composition of such creatures? <laughs> If such, I, and I'm not deriding it, and I've, you know, I've seen fascinating, you know, a fascinating movie, Moment of Contact from James Fox, about uh, some of these kinds of events. I don't know. I've not seen anything. Um, and uh, so, as uh, sadly, it's it, it it's anecdote. Um, but I think there's a there's a different kind of question that is being asked here is how do you deal with um, the hundreds or thousands of individuals uh, and often uh, children their testimonies how do you deal with the testimonies of individuals as as let's say Bayesian priors mm -hmm. uh, you know how, how do we deal with that kind of information um, and is it sufficient to get uh, others interested. Uh, again, there's different audiences. It's not sufficient for a scientist as proof, but maybe it's sufficient for politicians uh, that it's worth, um, you know, at the very least, I mean, John Mack from Harvard actually went through exactly this, is whether whether what these people are seeing or not is, is interesting or real, it does tell you something interesting about the human mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would like to mention an anecdote that uh, <clears throat> I was asked by the Boston Magazine uh, uh, when they made a profile about me um, a year ago that um, um, about uh, what will happen if uh, a spacecraft landed uh, in our backyard. And my wife said if they land back then, she said that if they ever land and want to pick you up, uh, just make sure that you leave the car keys with me and ask them not to ruin the loan when they take off. <laughs> now, actually, I was asked this question again at a forum, public forum, just uh, a month ago. Mm. And uh, I, so when I came home, I asked my wife again, I, I asked her, did you change your opinion? And she said to me that, well, this time I will tell you, make sure that you turn off the lights and I will join you. Because she's a little bit disappointed with what's going on around the world now. Mm. Uh, so, you know, there might be 
an opportunity for us to stay together, even if I go on board. I wonder, I wonder about the frequent fire mile situation. Would you get, you know, alien <laughs> premier gold or magnesium? You get magnesium status. Yeah, magnesium. I'll tell you what my worry is. When I go to Europe, I see the same movie again and again. But if you go to Alpha Centauri, you'll have to see it millions of times. That, that will be very boring. Well, unless unless it goes faster than light, Avi. Uh, that's true. That's true. Uh, we could all be using the Alcubierre drive or some derivative. Yeah, Gary uh, Mumfi, which is one of the names I chose for one of my kids, actually, uh, sends us a Norwegian donation asking you, Gary, do you have an update on the sphere you got from Colthart? I, I don't. Colthart. Well, yeah, this is another. Um, situation where you know somebody had some anomalous I, I i won't go into the into the details of it here but they have an anomalous material and it's the same thing i've said to to others is um yes i have the i have the material no i have not yet done the analysis because i'm not going to do the analysis until i have all of the right instruments lined up so that uh when i do it it's not just it's just not a one-off data point. It's a one-off data point is useless. It's correlated to nothing. Yes. And so, um, you know, as, as I said, it's expensive. People don't understand how expensive it, it is. Yeah. Okay. So I run it. I'll, I'll get iron and maybe some chromium and whatever. That doesn't prove anything to right. anybody. Yeah. And I, so, I, mm -hmm. you know, I just, it's just, and even if I did, if it were, if it were something worth, uh, you know, uh, announcing. I won't do it in a press release. I'll publish a paper, probably in a really boring place, mm -hmm. and let the world deal with it from there. Because one data point in isolation is nothing to me. Let me ask you this question that that came up in the context of a of a friend of mine who was uh, received. I won't say too much about it, not to be you know purposely mysterious, but but just because I don't know if it's anyway. He wanted to use some campus resources, um, you know, uh, X-ray uh, fluorescence spectroscopy, et cetera, et cetera, to look at some um, uh, some uh, ancient artifacts found uh, in a shipwreck, and and this was uh, you know something that we could look at with tools that we have here, and he was even willing to pay for it. But the question came up, you know, can you use you know, campus resources or even government. Do you think, you know, you might face if, if you did get, you know, as part of your reluctance to, to kind of, I mean, obviously you want to avoid being on People Magazine, uh, although I was just in People Magazine recently, not for World Sexiest Man, don't get your hopes up. Uh, but instead, guys, it was for uh, a comment I made about the sun. Uh, but but anyway, um, Gary, do you By worry? Way, speaking about that, I don't know if I mentioned to you, but um, one day um, someone pointed out to me a tweet uh, of uh, a husband who said his wife got, uh, a, she said she has a crash of, on, an, uh, on a scientist named Avi Loeb, uh, who she thinks is uh, sexier than Anthony Fauci. Ooh. And uh, I mentioned it immediately to my wife. That a good thing? And uh, her response was, Fauci is a low bar. <laughs> uh, you guys know you should be on the borscht circuit i know well that's our yeah we we avi and brian we we, we do go on tour uh but gary would would you face opposition for using you know do you have to be totally no. privately funded as no not at all um first of all i mean i would i won't use nih funds to mm -hmm. do things for you know that are aren't uh, validated but i have an endowed chair yeah. Uh, that, you know, uh, it, it basically generates a few hundred thousand dollars a year that I can use for anything. 
I happen to be on very good terms with the family uh, that originally donated the money that generates those endowed funds for me every year. They're perfectly fine with me doing it. Um, and Stanford is perfectly fine with me doing it because at, at the higher levels, uh, at least he, at least here, they're, you know, they understand that inquiry like this is, is, uh, laudable. Um, and if they ever dared to try to stop me, I would find ways to embarrass them. <laughs> Ominous. That's, uh. Good to know. And I don't want to get on your bad side, Gary. And, and if you are related to Christopher Nolan, that, that could even be more impressive. Okay, we're going to ask uh, some existential questions of Gary. I've asked these to Avi, but but actually I want to get it's time for an update, Avi. Uh, it was two years ago. You were on the first time on this podcast. Um, so I'll take a couple more questions from the audience. There's still time in the closing minutes. Just a reminder, you're talking to uh, professors uh, Avi Loeb, good, good friend of the show, four time guest, five time now on the Into the Impossible podcast. I have links to his previous episodes along with all the content I've had. I've had on skeptics, Gary, you should know. I've had on Michael Shermer. I've had on uh, Mick West. Uh, these are people, I don't know if you want to comment on them, but they've, uh, they, they are decidedly not on the UFO as uh, alien technology front. Well, you know that Michael Shermer uh, is also a member of the Galileo Project, and I brought people from both sides because I think evidence will eventually... So it's sort of like a litmus test. If everyone is united in the interpretation of the data, I know that we are not missing something. So I said that... To, uh, so Michael said that at some point, uh, um, you know, if you find evidence that is conclusive, uh, I will be glad to write an article about it in my magazine, Skeptic. Mm -hmm. And I told him, uh, you know, that's not enough. I want you to change the name of the magazine from skeptic to believer. To believer. Wow. That's now you can play the Pope. Uh, <laughs> we can really mix up some Catholic and Judaism. Um, OK, so uh, just a reminder, we're talking Avi Loeb of Harvard and Gary Nolan of, of Stanford University. And uh, and I'm Brian Keating, your humble host of the Into the Impossible podcast, where you've had on uh, dozens of conversations on this most fascinating subject. And we have another one coming up with Jacques Vallée, another uh, introductee to me by none other than Kurt Jai Mungle, who's lurking in the chat room and uh, has been so kind to, to uh, introduce me to Gary. And uh, and I want to thank him for that. So Jacques will come on. I'm trying to get Eric Weinstein on with Jacques. So let me know. Give a thumbs up if you'd like to see that pairing uh, before the end of the year. OK. <laughs> and Gary, maybe we'll have you and Eric Weinstein. That would be fun. I know he's uh, interested to talk to you. Eric's Jacques. a friend. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, and he's also, you know, been palling around with people like Lou Elizondo lately. So I want to get an update for him. Um, OK. And, and just a quick reminder, if you do want some interstellar uh, meteorites, you can uh, uh, Sign up for my mailing list, briankeating.com slash list. And you may win some extraterrestrial, maybe interstellar. I don't know. I can't I can't be sure. Uh, but uh, but maybe we're all interstellar. What's that? <laughs> we're all interstellar. That's right. Okay. So Gary, you have not been on uh, this podcast, but I love to ask the deepest questions of life because a scientist, you know what they say about scientists. How do you know a scientist is outgoing, Gary? Because he looks at your shoes when he talks to you. Um, uh, but we have this trope that we're, uh, you know, we're these unhuman, inhuman, androidal, you know, kind of thinking robots. And and sometimes we deserve it, right? Uh, we're, we're, we're on some kind of a spectrum. I'm so far on the spectrum, I'm off the spectrum. But, but, uh, but I do like to humanize my guests, and I'm not uh, implying that you're not human in any way. But I ask these questions, and you haven't really seen them, I don't think. 
but uh, they really kind of relate to the most important things of, of life, the kind of meaning questions of life. And I want to start with something that I asked Avi about when he was back on the show. And it's something in Hebrew called a zava'ah. It's an ethical will, not a material will. And it has to do with what you want to leave the planet with in terms of your wisdom, your learning, your your knowledge, not your material goods, which, you know, well, I don't know where those will go. Uh, but what wisdom would you most want to communicate to all of humanity and your ideological heirs once you spring forth this mortal coil, as the bard said? Hmm. Um, well, I, I mean, these are in some ways trite, but give more than you take. Um, and you know less than you think you do, uh, and listen more to others that the observations will teach you more than anything you think you understand. I mean, I mean, that's to me what I was always brought up as give more than you take. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and frankly, if you can take nothing. <laughs> Beautiful and leave no trace, right? No, no. Backpacking. Uh, Avi, did you want to comment? Yeah, so I actually met with a class of undergrads at Harvard a couple of weeks ago, and my advice to them was um, drawn from um, the metaphor of walking on the beach. You know, you often see some seashells that uh, maintain, you know, unique colors and, and uh, structure, and um, these are the, the youngest, the, those that were swept ashore very recently, but those that uh, over time were... Uh, uh, rubbing against each other as a result of being dragged by ocean waves, um, they eventually lose their unique colors and become, uh, you know, break up into indistinguishable uh, grains of sand. Okay, so my message to the young people is don't rub against each other on social media too often because then you will lose your unique colors. And, and the I want people to maintain it. And, you know, when I was um, a young kid, I grew up on a farm and that taught me that the independent thought is most important in life because very often humans are swayed by wishful thinking. That That's very common. And uh, if you want to find your truth, uh, you should not seek it in others. You should look for it yourself and keep your unique colors. Don't surrender to how many likes you have on Twitter. And besides, Twitter may go away, so. Well, yeah, I mean, if, uh, if Elon uh, keeps up with his uh, pace of innovation, uh, although I'm trying to get him, you know, to spend the 10th of what he bought Twitter for on some uh, a transformational physics project, so. Something's happened to your sound. Uh-oh, uh, what about now? Can you hear me now? Yeah, there it goes. Okay, yeah. good. Um, so the next question has to do with, and by speaking of Twitter, you can follow Gary at Gary P. Nolan on Twitter. And uh, Avi is too, uh, his time is too precious, so he's not on Twitter. But the Galileo Project has a Twitter account. It is Galileo Project 1 on Twitter. And hopefully it will have a blue check mark if they can come up with the eight bucks from one of Avi's billionaire buddies. Okay, next question for you guys. Uh, the namesake of this podcast uh, dates to... Uh, the man whose center we have at UCSD, the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. And I am the associate director of that fine, august institution. And of course, we open the audio podcast, which you can subscribe to as well, with Sir Arthur's actual reading of the following statement. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I want to ask you, if you had access, Gary, to a monolith 
an object of great permanence that could last not just 120 years, but billions of years into the future, what would you put on it or in it to bespeak of the magical technology that human beings have been able to construct in our short few hundred thousand years as a species of Homo sapiens? What most majestic, magical thing <laughs> in your field, maybe you created or somebody else created, would you put on a monolith to give a little swagger to humanity? Oh, I was going to say a Rubik's Cube, but um, uh, let's see. Well, I think one of the most amazing devices that we've created, well, I mean, many, but I, I, I think any, the lens, mm. right? Because it's a, you know, the, the, the glass lens, it's a, you know, it's emblematic of looking deeper. Right. It's kind of I mean, beyond the wheel uh, it's probably one of the first devices we ever created that allowed us to look beyond ourselves. And and that to me is, uh, you know, perhaps the best. That's great. It's interesting that Gary is thinking in my direction because lenses are often used in ast astronomy. Uh, but my preference would be to put uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, so that um, especially a system that can uh, evolve and uh, learn machine learning uh, because then it will be dynamic and whoever finds it will interact with it and learn much more if we store enough information. In fact, uh, I, I was advocating in a recent paper putting a, um, you know, a, a reboot system on the moon uh, that will be if something catastrophic happens on Earth, we want to keep all the precious information out there and so I bought a laptop uh, over the summer and together with it I had a backup system that is small tiny disk like uh, system that keeps all the information so the same thing we can keep on the moon and basically communicate to it by by laser and uh, transmit all the DNA information about all life forms on Earth uh, so that it's stored there and all human creations all the music all the books and so forth so that's sort of a monolith uh, because it keeps all the information, but I will add to that an AI system that is able to use that. Like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, what you use when you Google something, uh, you know, that's an AI system. And uh, so that would be fun to interact with. Yeah, no, I agree. I just, uh, I put a CD-ROM, uh, you know, when I did this. And uh, unfortunately, you know, the Microsoft paperclip could not decipher the CD. -ROM. Anyway, I'm just joking, guys. Uh, okay, last two questions for you, distinguished gentlemen actually have to do with another quote from Sir Arthur C. Clarke, which is the following. He said, when a distinguished but elderly scientist, I'm not calling you guys elderly, okay, come off it. When a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. But when they state something is impossible, they are very probably wrong. Gary, I wanna ask you with all humble respect and admiration, what have you changed your mind about? What have you been wrong about? Well, I don't know that I'm right or wrong about it, but I'm more of the opinion that the universe is somehow designed or made for life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe that's just my lack of appreciation of, of, uh, of the possibilities, but I, 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 I'm more of the opinion that the universe is uh, is somehow constructed to enable life. Now, it could just be that that's the way it is, but mm -hmm. um, it's easy enough to also imagine that some larger entity, uh, you know, in a 
universe beyond us, uh, you know, and we're encapsulated within that, you know, uh, created conditions such that we are here. Mm -hmm. I just find it fascinating that the way that all of the objects that operate down at the fundamental units of, of nature uh, can come together in a way that allow for life. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, in, I'm in a greater level of awe about it, if anything. And if awe equals a religious sort of uh, consideration, then that's kind of where I am. Yeah, let me connect to that. Uh, um, so when I started astrophysics, that was uh, 35 years ago, uh, there was this uh, notion that uh, the early universe is simple simply because we don't have data on it. That many people said that, oh, cosmology is simple, you know, just because we haven't gathered enough data. And once we collect the data, we will find that it's as complex as the universe nowadays. Mm. Full, you know, the universe now has, you know, in, in addition to life, it has stars, it has galaxies, very complex structures. Now, as we got more data about the early universe, now we have a lot of data, it's still simple. Now, this explains the error of time, okay, because the universe started simple and you can ask why. And, you know, some people advocate for infl cosmic inflation that they created initial conditions that are quite unique and simple. You know, the universe was pretty much uniform except for small fluctuations. Uh, some of us are not sure that cosmic inflation took place and maybe some other process did it. The bottom line is the universe started simple and became complex. And uh, you know, if you think about um, you, our life, it also goes that way. We start simple, you know, as babies, and then we get more complex as adults. Uh, but uh, here is the catch. Uh, complexity doesn't continue forever, okay? Because eventually we die and we become really simple once again. So if you look at old people, in a way, they are as vulnerable as babies, and they eventually become simple because they end up dead. Mm. And so... Um, the same will happen to our universe. Now it's sort of at the peak of its complexity. Maybe it will continue for a little while, but eventually we will be surrounded by vacuum because the expansion is accelerating and uh, there will be only our galaxy surrounded by nothing because uh, the all the other galaxies will exit from our horizon. And that's a simpler state, okay? And eventually all the stars will die. That's a simpler state than we have now and life will not exist. So my point is, we are used to complexity increasing with the error of time. There will be a point where simplicity will increase with the error of time. So it's not always true that error of time is in the direction of increasing complexity. And that's all because of gravity, you know, that drives everything in, in ways that we do not expect from thermodynamics. Yeah. Well, guys, this has been fascinating and delightful. Speaking of inflation, I wish you both uh, much inflation of your waistline. Although, Avi, you're wasting away. I, I used a picture, you know, of Avi from like a year or two ago, and uh, I had to take it down because you've, you've lost considerable number of kilos, which I will be conserving those kilos because you and I are in an exchange where I gain the weight you I, I've not been so kind in the past. Since, since the pandemic started every day, like for three years, actually, I've been jogging at sunrise. And I must tell you, it makes me younger. I feel really great about it. And it increases the density of thoughts per unit mass mm. in my body. So. <laughs> How about you, Gary? Do you have a quick one, two second uh, daily routine, something important to you or weekly routine that's that's important to you? Uh 
weekly routine. Um, well, I work in my garden. I have a greenhouse. I collect carnivorous plants because what mad scientist, you know, shouldn't collect carnivorous plants as well as being interested in UAPs. I've been interested in that sort of stuff. I saw you forever. tweet about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, gentlemen, it's been a distinct honor for me and I know for my audience. Um, and uh, I hope we can ha have many more conversations like this as new evidence, new data arises. And as you guys uh, continue also in your storied careers, uh, Avi, you've had a paper out recently about disconfirming inflation. I want to have you back on for that, as well as for your new book, Interstellar, which I put up the, uh, the, the monograph, the cover of it on the screen a couple of uh, maybe an hour ago now. Gary, I want to have you back on, talk about all sorts of exciting projects you're involved with, get your opinions on hot topics like CRISPR, gene editing, artificial life in the lab and other things. So hopefully you'll do me another honor, come back on someday. Yep, happy to. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening. Keep in touch, inspired and informed by signing up for Professor Keating's Monday Magic email at briankeating.com slash list. If you have a .edu domain, we'll send you an artifact from space, older than the Earth, forged in the fire of an ancient star in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. To see the video version of this podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's Dr. Brian Keating. Pay it forward by subscribing and sharing with friends. Please take a moment to reward us with an asterism of five stars and a review. We love reading all of your comments and suggestions. Follow Professor Keating on Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating. That's Dr. Brian Keating. Thanks to all our viewers and listeners for helping us reach the top 1% of podcasts. Remember, always be curious.